0: Welcome back to another very special, internationally flavored episode of For Fintech's Sake with me, your host, Zach Anderson-Pettit. Before we get into today's episode with Sean at Oak North, one quick housekeeping item. If you're a big fan of the show and want new episodes in your inbox as soon as they're released, go to forfintechsake.com and sign up. If you're subscribed inside of your favorite podcast app, this will come at about the same time and have a little bit more information. All right. My guest today is Sean Hunter, CIO at Oak North. Oak North started as a commercially focused bank in the UK and is now expanding across the world with their credit intelligence suite. We cover what all that means, including credit intelligence suite, how Oak North found its niche working with banks to improve credit intelligence around small business specifically, and what COVID has meant for small businesses near and far us and abroad we also dig into sean's background from music to palantir to the world of banking without further ado i hope you enjoy my conversation with sean hunter well sean welcome to for FinTech sake my friend how are you doing today
1: i am doing well thank you yeah it's a bit of a strange day but it's strange times but yeah generally good and yourself
0: I'm, you know, hanging in there as we were just preambling before this. If listeners can hear the uh, the test of the tornado sirens in Kansas City are happening right when we kick off our interview. So just another thing in 2021 to deal with and move through. Um, Well, speaking of that, you know, I'm in KC. Are you in London? Where are you calling from today?
1: I am in London. Yeah, in the UK. Wonderful.
0: All right. Well, now that we're far enough away from each other and it's late enough there. Let's dive in. Let's start with Sean's background. So being the CIO of Oak North is kind of your current gig, but what brought you to that? I know it's been a been an interesting journey to get to where you are today. So take us back to the beginning and kind of take us through that journey.
1: Sure. Yeah, I have a very strange career background. Um, so I have a degree in post in music, uh, specifically in jazz, contemporary and popular music. Um So I used to, well, I was quite briefly a professional musician, um, but I always programmed computers from when I was very young. My dad was an engineer, a chemical engineer, and he used to give me and my brother um, pocket money to, you know, write little chemical process models for him on the computer or convert them from one computer language into another or whatever. Um, And so I've always done programming. And then I used programming jobs to pay my way through my music postgrad and then I, I started having tendon problems, so I couldn't play. Um, and my career in computing at the same time had sort of taken off. Um, and so it just ended up that I was doing more and more uh, computing stuff. And then, uh, and that finally ended with um, me working for a dot-com um, during the dot-com era. And then uh, I left the dot-com to go to Goldman uh, because they were using some technology that really cared about linux which currently i mean is totally dominant in the cloud area but at the time it was quite a quite a fringe technology and so um, i was sort of interested in how someone like that could use something like linux and that led to a uh, eight years in finance um, which was a very interesting time including during the whole mortgages crisis and everything like that um and then eventually i felt like i'd kind of um i sort of done enough, I'd done my time and I, I, I was looking for something else to do. And I got called about um, a gig with a software company and the person said to me, hey, you know, you'll really love these guys. You know, they ride around the office on scooters and there's free food. And uh, and I said like, hey, I just could not be less interested in this. It this sounds completely, uh, it's completely not my thing. Um, but actually when I spoke and that was Palencia Technologies, who at the time had no brand in Europe um, whatsoever. And we basically, like, as I spoke to some people from Palantir, they were all really smart, they were really interesting, they were doing some really interesting things, and I became more and more interested in doing the job. And that led to me being one of two uh, first commercial engineers, so engineers on the commercial business in Europe for Palantir, so me and one other guy who hired the same day. and uh, at the time, everyone in Palantir in Europe used to sit around a single table to eat for lunch, you know. Uh, now there's obviously hundreds or possibly even thousands of people in Europe for Palantir. But yeah, it was quite a, it was quite a journey. Um, then I, was, I led their engagement with big banks, partly because of my time at Goldman. I sort of knew a bit about how banks work. Um, and I led their engagements with banks sort of um, using data to... Understand rogue traders. So, you know, when you've got a trader in, a, in an investment bank who makes a big loss and then tries to cover it up or hide it or whatever, um, that can lead to a massive problem for the bank. Um, and so you can use various types of data to detect those types of situations. And that's what I um, was doing. And then that led to a partnership with Credit Suisse, a joint venture called Signac, which I was uh, co-head of. And then when that kind of wound down, because the regulation around capital rules and so on changed, and that meant that our our sort of founding rationale for the startup wasn't that interesting anymore. And so I was looking for something else to do, and I could have gone back to uh, Pans here, but that seemed like, you know, replaying my greatest hits uh, it's you know didn't seem that interesting and then I, right out of the blue i got a call from oak north and uh the founders of oak north seemed really fascinating um, and again it seemed like a real opportunity to learn stuff and do something new so that's that's how i came to oak north
0: so before we get all the way into oak north i want to pull on a couple a couple strings there <laughs> a couple streams. I'm about to ask you a question about music. I didn't mean to say that, but I'm hilarious. Um, So time in music specifically and pulling on that string, was there anything in that that you learned through your time in music, especially being a professional musician that you took into your professional career? I imagine there's some work ethic. I don't know what it is, but I imagine there's a number of things there.
1: Oh, for sure. I mean, I think there are two things. So the first thing is, there's a massive difference between being a bit good at something and being really good at something. And you actually need to approach what you do and how you learn really differently if you're very serious about getting good. And I really learned that in music when I, when I went to my first year of music college, because I had previously been, you know, the best musician in my band and then the best musician in my little kind of uh, performing arts thing that i was doing and and i was quite you know i guess complacent and then i suddenly went to music college and everyone was really good and loads of people were way better than me and i really needed to to learn a lot and i realized like you have to be very structured you have to work very seriously on the things you find hard and you you know if you're really serious so that's the one thing the other thing which is a famous quote from a a musicologist, believe it or not, called Nicholas Cook. Um, But this is something that I take with me everywhere and it's very, very relevant to computer science, um, which is all notation is analysis. And I think it's really interesting thought, which he was talking about music notation and actually like, you know, we have a set of music notation that we use in the West But in actual practice, you can notate music any way that's like you can you can devise new forms of notation if you want to. But actually, when you when you make a way of notation, you're really structuring how you think about that thing. And that's a very, very interesting uh, thing for me, because one of the things that I do a lot is try to think about new frameworks for tackling a particular problem and and how you can. Uh, you know think about what the different dimensions are and and you know all the different concerns and things like that and actually how you choose to write it down and and the way in which you do it really structures the way you think about the problem and so it's actually very important and uh, and yeah I definitely learned that from music.
0: That's fascinating. I mean, on your first point, that reminds me a lot of, of my experience going and playing soccer in college. I was always this, uh, I hadn't played really until I got to high school. And then I ended up falling backwards into a scholarship to go play for college. And I was like, I'm going to go play professional. And then I walked in and saw how the quality of the other college athletes. And I was like, I'm not going to go play professional. I should probably figure out what I'm going to do with my life. Um, so I definitely feel you there. And the second piece like reminds me of Two experiences in my life. One is trying to read music when I was a younger kid and trying to learn how to play guitar and then drums and I was always just horrible at it. And then when I was a product manager later in life trying to read even HTML, I was just like what is this? So, it sounds like you understand some things in life that I don't and some of these things <laughs> just click for certain brains and don't click for others. So, it's it's interesting. The the next thing I wanted to take us to was kind of your Palantir experience. I think being one of the first two engineers in a whole portion of the world for a company like that must be fascinating. The first thing that I would kind of want to pull on is the title of forward deployed engineer. That is just the most badass engineering title that I've ever heard of in my life. I yeah. mean, it sounds like, it almost sounds like, you know, special forces or something like that. What was that experience like? Was it kind of not militant, but was there a certain amount of, uh, almost military vibe to it because of who you were serving because of kind of what you were dealing with?
1: Yeah, so the title comes from the fact that there is, so I was on the commercial side, but they have a government side that works with people like the military, special forces, intelligence, various non-government organizations, charities, and so on. And um, yeah, and some of those people are forward deployed. So at here you used to actually get a special short shirt if you got deployed into a war zone. So if you actually went to Afghanistan or whatever, you get a red shirt. Like you know, the guys in Star Trek that always die that no one ever sees. They're always wearing a red shirt and then they beam down onto the planet and then they get vaporized or whatever. So yeah. So um, and, and so that's where the title came from. But the idea is that you know, you go to the client, you work at the client, you try and understand their world and their concerns, and then you try and use the software toolkit to help them solve their problem. And so um, you really are kind of forward deployed in the sense that, you know, at one point in my life, I was literally 24 seven and that's no exaggeration. I I was there, you know, from long before the first actual employee arrived till long before the lights went out actually at night um, and we'd have to get kicked out um, at a particular client for weeks and weeks and weeks on end solving their problem. so, but you you really get a sense for for being kind of in the in the zone. But yeah, there there is a sort of an influence of that of that culture um, on on uh, Palantir. It's a kind of interesting organization. It's a weird mix of of you know nerds like me and people from all walks of uh, of life.
0: So my last question on Palantir before we come forward to North, just because I'm I'm so f- fascinated by the the culture created there through the pieces of what's public and what's secret. Like, it's just, it just seems like such a secretive organization that I'm very curious specifically about the cultural piece. Being the first two engineers in one specific region, were you kind of creating your own culture? Did you feel like you were taking the values espoused from maybe like the U.S. Palantir and taking it overseas? How did you formulate that kind of group mentality that takes you to like even doing twenty four hours a day?
1: Yeah, interesting. So one of the things that they do um, so so firstly like the the culture internally is incredibly transparent and open people um, talk very openly about you know, um, concerns, points of difference that they have, disagreements with things that the founders might do, um, and so on. Everyone's discusses those kinds of things incredibly openly, at least they did when I was there. Um, and so while they have a external reputation for perhaps being somewhat secretive, it's definitely not like that internally. Um, that being said, obviously, some of the work is, is confidential and secretive and so on, and and so for example, I never had any exposure whatsoever to the government work. Um, And you know, you get a vague idea of what people are doing, but there's lots of things they can't discuss and so on. Um, So how you form a culture? Well, one of the things they do, which I think is a really interesting idea is they they basically trust people a lot and they give people an incredible amount of autonomy. Um, And so even when you just join, they really trust you to represent the company externally um, to talk to the most important clients. Um, So, you know, I never had any kind of sales training or anything like that. And literally like um, days after I started, I was there at a client, which is the largest hedge fund in the world. Um, And, and, you know, really having to solve some really really difficult problems and they just trust you to kind of get on with it and so the culture is very resilient you're sort of taught to be a self-starter and and uh, and it, it breeds a kind of a real um confidence because you get chucked into all these really tough situations and you manage to succeed um you you know you kind of it's it's a great feeling
0: power of autonomy continues to amaze me. It's a, I ask questions like that sometimes and it all like different words gets used, you know, whatever, but it does kind of come back to this 50,000 foot idea of just hire smart people and let them do what they think is right with a set of, you know, with a with responsibility and with autonomy to actually make the decision without having to go through, you know, bureaucracy or is.
1: Yeah, it makes a, it makes a huge difference. And so you're totally empowered to make decisions and people will trust you to make the right decision. So for example, and it allows them to respond very, very quickly to situations. So, you know, for example, there was a very, very public and very prominent cyber breach, um, which I can't say who, who it was, but it was a very, very huge problem for this particular company. And um, my friend who was in charge of the cyber practice, cybersecurity practice at Palantir at the time, she just said, okay, let's go. And she just, Ordered some like a huge amount of equipment, had it shipped directly to the client. Twenty-four hours later, they were there. They were actually already analyzing the problem, and they just trust you to say like, "Hey, we just ordered, you know, I don't know how much it was, like a hundred thousand, two hundred thousand dollars worth of equipment, and it's like there." straight away. Um, so, so people give you a tremendous amount. Now, obviously, um, if her judgment had proved to be incorrect, um, that would (laughs) have been a problem and she would have had ramifications, but, but they do trust you. And they, so the organization is somewhat sort of fractal is how they describe it. That they, they tend to organize it in little teams, give those teams lots of authority and autonomy to, to make their own decisions about stuff.
0: Wow. The special forces overlap just keeps popping up and <laughs> listening to you talk. All right. We're, we're just going to have to have a offline beer and dig more into the, the Palantir stuff because I clearly have questions and you know, I, I haven't signed an NDA yet. So we'll, we'll get to that later when we're one on one. Let's talk Oak North. So you kind of gave a quick version of how you met the founders. Let's dig into why the founders started Oak North. So you kind of told me the story about them trying to get some debt financing specifically in the UK didn't go great went to the U S and it worked a lot better. Tell, Expand on that. Tell us more about the why of this thing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So this is actually what hooked me on the company. Um, them telling me the story and it's also, you know, why Oak North is important and, and why they're doing it. So they previously had a business which outsourced the analyst and associate roles of big banks and, um, And they used to work for a number of different banks, a number of different debt funds, hedge funds, and so on. And they were pretty successful. um, And and their business was growing. It was cash flow positive and so on. But because of the way they had built that business, they're very, very frugal. um, And they were sort of bootstrapping that business from nothing. They, you know, were were kind of growing very rapidly, and they realized they needed more working capital because they were sort of from month to month they were kind of getting close to the wire. If a if a client hadn't paid them, they would have found it difficult to make payroll and so on because they were building it all with their own money. They were actually, you know, student roommates together, um, and they used their own money to start this start this company, this previous company. Um, and so they went to a bank in the UK and and asked for a loan, and the Best offer they had was a hundred thousand pounds, financed by. um, But they'd have to put Rishi's house up as collateral. And Rishi, one of the two founders, the other one being Joel Perlman, um, you know, they'd been working for zero compensation uh, for you know a couple of years. So they had all the debt they could possibly manage, and and a hundred thousand pounds wasn't nearly enough anyway because they had a very big business. So even though it was profitable, um, and then. So they said no, and they thought that's just that's just terrible. Um, but you know, because they had a services business, they didn't have hard assets, and actually more and more businesses find themselves in the spot where, you know, they're they're a business that's built on intellectual property, it's built on people's expertise and so on. It's not necessarily an old fashioned you know, thing where you're making teaspoons and you've got a big factory which you can use as collateral for a loan, right? So um nothing against making teaspoons you know, but like traditional industry is very... <laughs> so basically then sometime later, I think it was like nine months later or so, they were working with uh, Citi's special situations group um, in New York. And they spoke to the special situations group and they said, yeah, sure. We'll give you a $10 million unsecured dividend recap because, you know, they had a five-year contract with city or whatever. And so so city knew that they were good for the money. Let me ask
0: you a quick question, just because I don't know what the what did you call the group at City? Special situations. Special situations. So is the, that what it sounds like?
1: Yeah, it's kind of stuff like so. So you know when you you've got a company and they split it into a good company and a bad company and they spin them off or they, that kind of thing. That's a special situation. And and banks have big groups that do de- basically advise on these types of huge transactions. They also tend to deal with you know, weird situations like, you know, a government will want to finance a toll road or a tunnel or something like that. And they need a, a very weird sort of $2 billion loan or whatever. So, you know, a small loan to a services business is completely not what these people normally do. But they said, yeah, sure, we'll just keep, we'll, we'll do it for you. Um, And it was much smaller than the kind of transaction they typically work on, but they did it as a favor. And And they thought to themselves, this is totally crazy. Like in the UK... We could only get 100,000 pounds secured. And in the US, we get $10 million unsecured. Um, and and so they thought this market is just totally broken. And so then basically the, the long and short of it is later on, when they sold that business, they sold it to Moody's and it became what is now Moody's Analytics. And it was a very, very successful sale. They took the weekend off and then they started a bank and they wanted to start the bank specifically focused on this problem. So lending to SMEs and mid-market companies that are growing rapidly, need debt finance, um, because they realized if they have this problem, lots of other entrepreneurs probably have the same problem.
0: And this was one of the few banks chartered in the last, what, century or something like that in the UK? I mean, sim- similar to the US, not a yeah, ton of new right. banks have come in. What was... I mean, do you know what that process was like? I mean, it sounds like probably not super straightforward.
1: Yeah. And so, I mean, like at the time that it was founded, it was the third new bank charter in 158. The, the, the regulators have actually subsequently started to use the regular or like move into the 21st century a little bit. And there have been a few other entrants, but at the time it was very, very unusual. What year was this? So I think that was 2015 when they went through that process.
0: 2013 is when I think it was what the FCA disbanded and like two entities and those two entities tried to expand the opportunity to create banks, right?
1: Yeah, that's right. So there was like the, the FSA and the FCA and um, and so on. And they part of the reason was they felt like post-crisis, obviously everyone did a bunch of navel gazing. And, and one of the things that people thought is we need more resilience in banking system, it's far, far better to have lots of slightly smaller banks than to have all the risk concentrated in a very small number of incredibly large banks, because obviously, suddenly, if you've got a very, very large bank, you know, the system can't tolerate that institution failing. And then you have all kinds of social costs associated with the too big to fail problem and all that kind of stuff. And so they tried to make it easier for entrants to come into the market to actually not that easy because starting a regulated institution and getting all the capital and all that kind of stuff is, is tough. There's lots of challenges have found, Um, but it's easier, but, you know, there were also lots of other kinds of regulatory stuff that we were sort of trailblazers. So for example, we were the first UK bank that was fully cloud hosted. The regulators had no idea of like cloud and so on. And so us plus Amazon web services worked with the regulator to Kind of come up with a framework of regulation for regulating banks that were fully cloud hosted, and and then you know, um, so then they approved us. and We were the first uh, bank to be 100% in the cloud, um, which has obviously been tremendously beneficial in this crisis because we don't have any physical infrastructure. That we actually have to be around uh, to access and so on. Um, but yeah, and so so, but yeah, regulators—it's it, changed a lot in the last uh, in the last five years.
0: Is that, I mean, I imagine this feels like almost a softball or a dumb but is the standard over in the UK banking world now to be in the cloud? Like, are there still on-prem servers at some of the largest, at the Barclays or whatever of the world? Like, how does, what's the standard?
1: I think the standard is very much on-prem. Most of the big banks are sort of dipping their toes in the water with cloud. Um, but, you know, one of the things, um, you know, one of the, the world of, FinTech. One of the things that I I love to think about is the ecosystem of banks and providers, right? And uh, that world has changed tremendously. So if you think in the eighties and nineties, you had a few very large providers. I'm thinking, you know, Oracle. I'm thinking, you know, the 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 big CRM providers like Siebel and and um, those kinds of people. And obviously everything was on-prem and the clients were almost held hostage to the provider, right? Obviously nowadays, it's a much more open ecosystem and there's much more scope for small fintech providers to actually provide things. And part of that transition is cloud. I think cloud is, is both a symptom and an enabler of that of that evolution.
0: Yeah, I had a Catherine Van Nuys, who is now, I think she's been promoted since I had her on the podcast, but she's now like head of FinTech across, I don't know, the world. She's taking over the world, one AWS, you know, provisioning. Um, But it's really wild to hear some of her stories. I mean, I think in the podcast, she talked about Oak North. I remember she talked about Monzo specifically, I think having one of the smallest compliance teams to ever stand up actual bank sort of thing. I think it was like sub 10 people or something like that. It seems like this, uh, the shift the cloud is providing some some serious efficiencies that are that are worth taking the time to consider seems like
1: yes well one of the things is you know monzo is a good example we too one of the things you can do is you can make your operating model for your bank radically simple and your operating infrastructure radically more simple than than a regular bank and then it doesn't take an army of thousands to describe it to a regulator. It. it doesn't take hundreds of people to make it secure from data breaches and so on, simply because it's that much, you have far fewer pieces, you have far less that can go wrong and so on. So it it is a real paradigm shift, I think. And, you know, one of the things I think all, you mentioned Barclays and so on, I'm sure all the big banks would love to embrace that paradigm more than they have. But part of the problem is it's incredibly difficult to go from what they have now, a spaghetti of thousands or tens of thousands of systems to something simpler is, is very challenging.
0: Yeah, that's uh, there's there's enough companies founded in the 1920s in Kansas City that I've spoken to enough executives to know that it's not as straightforward as I thought it would be or should be. I, it's kind of wild to me that that nut hasn't necessarily been cracked yet. Anyways, fascinating stuff. Let's, let's keep going into the... Oak North specificity. So I think one of the things with kind of the side of things that kind of takes us further into the business strategy is you establish an actual bank in the UK, right? But the UK is only so big and the ability to grow to... and in the world that you actually want to impact the world over time, you have to go international, right? And the way that you've actually gone about going international, I think is really interesting. So can you kind of talk us through that, why you're maybe not setting up FIs in every individual country versus like becoming a SaaS service and the thought process and that kind of expansion?
1: Yeah. So as you mentioned, like the goal of of Joel Perlman, and Rishi Kosla, our two founders, was always to solve this problem globally, because they realized it's a global problem. Everywhere around the world, small and medium-sized businesses are, are somewhat overlooked and underserved by their banks. Um, and so they realize it's a global problem. But, you know, how do you solve this kind of global problem? Well, you know, if you go into it thinking, okay, I'm going to build banks in 50 different countries. um, It just is so slow for all the reasons you mentioned, you know, regulators um, and capital requirements and everything become so onerous um, that it just takes forever to get anything done. And so they wanted to move a lot faster. So their idea was we wanna have a SaaS platform business that helps banks to lend faster, lend smarter, lend more money to these types of businesses. and you know, brings them real intelligence to their credit process. However, you can't just go as a software company and say, hey, we know how to do lending much better than you. Banks just won't believe you. So you need a proof point. So so they they started the bank to be the proof point for the platform. Um, so that you know they they could say, okay, look, we we know how to do this, we do it ourselves. Um, and, and you can do it too. And therefore, um, you know, we're a bank just in the UK. We don't, we don't ever intend to get banking license or do lending anywhere else. Um, and everywhere else, we're a software business that works with banks to, to crack this particular problem. How
0: different is the small to medium business ecosystem, SME, SMB, whatever buzzword you want, in the UK versus, I guess, the broader EU versus the US? Like, are small businesses small businesses, or is there more nuance than that based on your geography?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. So lots and lots of things are in common. So one of the things that we found, and I've spoken to banks and small businesses literally from the West Coast of the US to the Philippines, I've been... Just everywhere, and and one of the things that you find is uh, a lot of things are in common. So you know, in all of these countries, um, small businesses are the engine of economic growth. They're the engine of employment, and it doesn't matter whether you're in a developed economy like the U.S., the U.K., Germany, um, or whether you're in a developing country, South Africa, etc. That is. Universally the case. So, so for all of those places, small businesses are the the heart of the economy. Um, And then the second problem is in each of these countries, small business owners are very underserved and overlooked by banks. And actually, you even go to the banks and they'll say, yeah, we suck at this. If you're talking about like, you know, a hundred million dollar loan, they will roll out the red carpet. They will do a bunch of work. They'll figure it out. If you're talking about a thousand dollar loan, there's lots of fintech innovation that's meant that that service has radically improved over the last 10 years. Um, but if you're in the middle of somewhere and you're looking at a half a million dollar, say million dollar loan, um, you're way too small for the red carpet treatment, but your thing is way too complicated um, for the treatment that you would give a thousand dollar loan, like a, like a, you know, Iwaka or or whatever. And so those people are still getting a 1980s lending experience, you know. Uh and 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 so um that is being universally our experience. And in every country that I go to, they you know, when I speak to banks, they'll say, oh, yeah, but in our country, it's really hard to get data. You know, you work in the US, um, you know, it's easy to get data here, but there but here it's hard well actually in the us they'll say oh you work in the uk it's easy to get data in the uk it's hard in the us it's actually hard everywhere like it's always difficult for banks to get data around performance of small and medium-sized enterprises um, so that they can make good decisions so we realize that data has to be at the heart of our solution Um, but you know, there's a world of data and so you can't just provide data. Um, you know, there's Refinitiv and there's Bloomberg and there's people who provide data. Um, but what banks actually need is some insight. And so you have to have analytics and so on and intelligence on top of the data to help them to make good decisions.
0: Like, it sounds like there's layers. There's like, there's data in the sense of big data, which you're pulling in kind of Data you can pay for that allows you to train your model and yada yada yada, but you also need data from the actual business, right? You need cash flow week over week, whatever it is. And that's that's where I hit the rub every single time I talk to any kind of quote unquote fintech lender, because what you said earlier is exactly true, right? They'll say, Well, we have a data advantage and we can underwrite better because of yada yada yada. Right. And I'm like, okay, so how do you get that? If you have that data, I agree with you, but how an end of one like cold start problem of how you get that data and how you keep it current over time, right? So talk us through that. Like number one, how do you actually pull in that data to start? And then six months into the loan, how do you keep that data current?
1: Yeah, so there's a very challenging set of problems there. And I'd like to kind of just unpick them a little bit. So firstly, one of your problems is, say you want to say you're starting a bank and you've got zero loans and you want to go lend to, I don't know, a hotel, right? So just picking a al- completely arbitrary example. So you think, okay, I want to get some data around hotels to to decide whether or not to, to what kind of hotels I want to lend to and so on. Now, mostly like there's tons of different sources around hotels. Um, if you start to think about it, Obviously hotels form part of a broader hospitality and tourism industry and so on. And so you, you need to understand some other aspects of that to just of get a picture. And then, so just trying to get that data is kind of a ball of wax because it turns out that obviously all the different data providers don't talk a common language. And so you can't just take data source A and join it to data source B and everything will work. You've got to figure all that mapping stuff out, which is complicated. But then setting all of that to one side, when you've got borrower data, well, if you go to a borrower and say, hey, Mr. Hotel Arena, um, please, can you take me through your business plan? They're going to send you an Excel. And you know, then you speak to Ms. Hotel Arena who's, who's got a business plan. She's going to send you an Excel and those things are completely different from each other. Or they might send you a PDF document that's a scan of the management presentation or whatever. And what you don't want to do is say to the borrower, okay, you've got to spend the next week filling out a massive form. you know. But you want the experience to be seamless and and low friction for the borrower because speed is very, very important. And if you think about the US, there's a market where there's thousands of banks. Ideally, a bank using Oak North should be able to be faster than their competitors, right? So that they can offer a differentiated service to their clients. That's what we want to enable. Um, So one of the very, very complicated, somewhat boring, but very important technological problems we had to tackle is how do you get this borrower data and pull it into a common format so you can actually compare businesses with each other and then join it to external data to make sense of the world? Um, And then how do you automate that process so that you decide to lend to Stephanie's hotel on day one And then like six months later, you want to actually check that things are still okay. She sends you updated financial statements. You want to bring them in seamlessly. You don't want that to be a whole pain experience. And if you go to banks, even quite technologically advanced banks, you'll find that actually under the surface, there are armies of people dealing with this problem. It's very expensive. Lots of people. It's a very old-fashioned process. It's a very poor borrower experience for the most part. Um, because it makes the bank slow and bureaucratic seeming from the outside. And for the bank itself, it's obviously costly, it's inefficient. It also means that every loan is its own little beautiful thing. So, you know, um, if I'm the hotel, you know, relationship manager who deals with hotels and I look at Stephanie's loan, you know, I build my hotel model And then like six months later, somebody else looks at another hotel, they build a totally separate hotel model. You can't compare those things. They don't have similar projections. So even if you want to answer a really basic question about your portfolio to say like, hey, how are my borrowers all doing? Which ones are in difficulty or whatever? Most banks really struggle to answer that question. And that obviously becomes really important when you have something like the COVID crisis, because the government suddenly says, hey, here's all these targeted packages that you can use to help your borrowers. Banks, contrary to popular opinion perhaps, actually really do want to help their borrowers. They actually don't know which borrowers to target which programs at. They don't know which borrowers are really struggling. If you're actually paying your loan, so you're current on your loan, most banks have no idea whether your business is in difficulty or not. And that's a really serious problem because it means that these borrowers are okay until they're completely not okay. So they're like, the bank thinks, oh, Sean's fine, Sean's fine, Sean's fine. Oh, Sean's just dropped dead. You know, imagine if we ran medicine that way, you know, like, you know, everyone's completely fine. We're not giving them any treatment until they suddenly just completely gone. You know, they would be terrible, right? Um, but unfortunately, banks, that's that's the best they can really do um, in a lot of cases. So one of the things we wanted to do is use this technology uh, use external data and so on so that banks can monitor their portfolio much more continuously, use much more thoughtful forecasting so that they can understand what the future looks like. So you can look at Sean's business and say, hey, in three months' time, if this current COVID lockdown continues, what is Sean's debt capacity going to look like? Is he going to run out of debt uh, capacity? Is he going to be still profitable? Is he going to run out of cash liquidity? You know, is he going to have a liquidity crisis so he won't be able to pay his staff and suppliers and so on? And this is really important because it's in everyone's interest that these businesses continue to function and that banks are able to keep them alive so that when the turnaround happens, they're actually able to provide jobs for people and restart the economy. So it's a very, very important problem right now to solve. So speaking
0: of, I guess, like the, the disjointment of standard operating procedure inside of especially banks in the US, right? I've spent enough time around bankers to know that for the most part, each bank considers some piece of what they're doing a special sauce and that you know row and column is going to be in a different place than this row and column at this other bank. And the standardization of data obviously is a huge issue, but there's also this level of knowing the human and the relationship lending thing. We won't go there, but I think my specific question is about how you keep that data current, everything you just said makes sense, but it almost sounds like you're moving towards what like in the U S would be on the consumer side, like this company called pedal, which is doing cash flow underwriting. It sounds like you're moving more towards what is the cash in the bank? What are the liabilities versus like a 2020 rear view lens? So do you have like it for different banks, are you going to have like a plaid connection or something into their actual bank account? They sending you like, weekly or monthly PDFs that you then have to do some kind of NLP on and pull into a system like are there different data tubes or is it pretty standard across the industry
1: all of the above so unfortunately it's not Ah, fun you have to do them all Um, we very much want to move towards um, you know direct accounting connections and so on Um, we think that's the future for sure however Realistically, lots of borrowers are not there. Um, you've obviously got also businesses where um, they're domain experts, but they're not necessarily super sophisticated. They might not have a computing package for doing their accounts, etc. So you have to deal with all of those cases, which makes the tech uh, interesting but kind of you know messy to explain. Um, but that's the one thing I think the relationship aspect is very important, and and handling the differences between banks is very important if you. If you take, you know, you're in Kansas City, right? So if you take a bank in Kansas City, they may have like special knowledge of the conditions in your state or the main businesses in your state. Their edge, if they're up against a city or a JP Morgan or a Wells Fargo, is the fact that they know more about what's going on locally, et cetera, right? So you want to make sure that your solution captures that. Um, And the way we deal with that is... um, is we keep this, the human, in the center. So what we want to do is give them lots of information, give them everything they need in order to make a good decision, but let them make the decision. And then what that means is the nuances between banks kind of get expressed automatically because those people will just emphasize the things that their bank cares about. um, And therefore, you know, the, the right kinds of things will happen. And the system allows for their extra knowledge of the client and so on. Um, so they can express risks and mitigants for clients. Uh, they can write up their summary of a credit situation and so on. So that, that's helpful. How to keep things current, I think, is a real problem for the industry as a whole. And we tackle it in a few ways. So as I mentioned, you know, lots of different ways to get information in from borrowers and so on. But the other thing is external data. So, you know, like I, I mentioned the crisis and I, I promise I won't keep harping on about the crisis, but it's quite instructive. So if you think about the COVID crisis, one of the obvious questions is like, say I've got a bunch of borrowers, how is it affecting them? Well, I look at their sector, okay? So then I go, say it's a, you know, I don't know, I use the hotel earlier, so let's use a used car dealership. So it's a used car dealership, right? So I go to my sector press. This is the historical, the, way, the old way of doing things. I go to my sector press where I go search on a website and so on, and it says, oh, in July last year, Used car dealerships were down 20% on year-on-year. On year. So I'm like, okay, that's my most recent data point. That's the best I have to go on. It's like nearly nine months out of date now. But now I know that actually there's been a huge rebound since then. I just happened to know that. Um, and actually, you know, car used car dealerships are up, and used car sales are up uh, significantly year-on-year. Uh, year. Now. Why is that? There's lots of interesting analysis around that. But the point is you need lots of sources of data and you need to use non-traditional data to fill in the gap between these traditional data sources. So, you know, you might have a U.S. government official number that gets published quarterly, super reliable and everything, but it's it's published quarterly and it's a quarter out of date when it gets published. So you've got to – you need something more – even if it's a little less reliable, you need something more timely. And so we can use non-traditional data sources to act as a proxy in the meantime. So one of the things we do is we look at for a given sector, what are the things which drive revenue? What are the things which drive costs? How can we find that information in the data? And if some of those sources are not that frequent, are there other sources which can kind of fill in the gaps? So you get the best possible current picture at any given point in time. And then obviously you course correct as the more reliable data points come in um, over time.
0: So one of the most interesting pieces of that, I mean, as you keep harping on COVID, I think you harp on it because we're in the midst of a pandemic that we haven't seen anything close to in you know, a century or so. So I think it's fair to harp on it, especially in the financial ecosystem. So let's go to COVID. Mm. Oak North specifically has put together, I think, what you call a COVID score. And I think that, you know, leaving the human in the middle of it, especially in the US, is a beautiful thing, right? But the ability for that human sitting inside of a bank to understand, okay, so this is a business. I'm I'm looking at an opportunity to lend. This is, you know, X business or Y business, and they have this cash flow or that cash flow, yada, yada, yada. It seems like All of that is very helpful and key, but there's almost like this first principles question of like, are they in a market that will even last through COVID, right? Like lending to a bar or restaurant, to your point, is probably very different than lending to DoorDash or lending to, you know, a software first business or whatever right now. So how do you kind of go about sussing out those differences and is like, is the... If there's an algorithm here, is that just kind of one variable in the algorithm? And like, how much weight does the industry have versus cash flow and health of the business in a classical sense?
1: Yeah. So this is super interesting. And and, and this has been a real journey we've gone on. And and the reason that COVID I think is is interesting is it basically shows up the shortcomings of the old fashioned approach, the the purely backward looking approach that banks used to take. And it shows you need to do something different. So the journey we went on, on developing this thing is back in January last year, when the first signs of this crisis started emerging from China, it, we we developed an analysis of supply chain because at the time it was just a Chinese epidemic. Um, and so we looked at, okay, for our bank and for our customers, do they have any borrowers who have a supply chain exposure to Wuhan in China, and therefore they're likely to you know, have problems. And then as it became a global pandemic and it was more focused on lockdowns and therefore the complete absence of demand in the economy, We started to evolve our model and make it more based on, okay, what is a business uh, response to, you know, lockdowns of different lengths and what is a reboot look like for the sector and what is a, you know, new normal, as everyone keeps calling it, look like for the sector afterwards. Um, Because that last question, which you touched on is very interesting. So if you look at um, the demand for paper products as an example, right? So... um, One of the things that the crisis has meant is everyone's working from home. And so lots of processes that used to be paper-based, like signing contracts, um, have all moved to electronic signature. Now, that's a super trivial observation, right? Like, but everyone's seen that. And, and, And all through our life, there's all kinds of examples. Like, so you'd think, okay, so the demand for paper has gone down, right? However, everyone's also getting lots of deliveries because lots of things are being delivered because you can't go to physical shops. And so deliveries are up and therefore packaging has gone up, right? Like there's demand for packaging is much higher. So the current status quo is you'd say, okay, demand for paper's down, demand for cardboard for packaging has gone up. And then post-crisis, like if you imagine, after the lockdown ends, probably the demand for deliveries is going to go down a little bit because people might work from home a little bit more than before. People might get more deliveries than before, but, you know, probably they're still enjoy to go to a physical shop. And so therefore, not all those deliveries will continue to be delivered. However, the processes which were paper-based and have become electronic, like like using e-signatures, are not going to change back to being paper-based. And so for each sector, we've done a, a little exercise of you know, that kind of forward thinking. So what is the, what is the lockdown fees look like and the impact on the businesses? How long does it take to reboot to some percentage of previous earnings? And then finally, you know, are there you know sort of secular changes in a given sector. that will permanently affect it. And and to your actual question, the, the sector is a very, very important factor in that. But then, then there are idiosyncratic factors around the business because what we're really looking at is specifically what is their liquidity look like as you play through these three phases? What is their liquidity? What is their debt capacity? And then finally, profitability. So, you know, because ultimately what you want to be sure is they're going to have liquidity that they can actually carry on operations and survive through this crisis, that they can afford a loan, and that's where debt capacity plays into it. And then finally, that they're ultimately going to be able to pay back, which you need a profitable business in order to do that. And so that's why those three factors them really – and that's a very kind of traditional view of credit, to be honest. But the spin is we're doing it on a forward-looking basis, which is really, um, which is really new. My brain
0: hurts from the amount of variables that you have to deal with, Sean. That is a lot of that's a lot of layers. I mean, just thinking about, you know, one example of doing the restaurant industry, if left to my own devices would probably take me a quarter, you know, it'd take me three, four months just to do that. And e- even if I knew what the hell I'm talking about, which I don't, so it'd probably take me a whole year. So how, how big is your data team? Also, I think you're about to say something. Go ahead. I oh,
1: know it's huge. So, so our data team is I mean, like, I, I forget because it's it's that many people, but we have a very large team of engineers and product people. We also have a specific team of what we call credit scientists. So those are data scientists with a credit background.
0: Wow. Credit scientists. That is a badass. You're you you got you're just surrounded by awesome uh, awesome corporate titles. I love it.
1: It's so true. It's so true. It's so true. Um, but yeah, your restaurant example is a really good example because... If you think a little deeper about it, it turns out you have to get really, really granular to, to be able to do this. Because it's not enough to just say a restaurant, right? Like if you've got a pizza restaurant that specializes in like fast turnover, um, they probably have a takeout business so they're probably in lockdown, they're affected, but people are getting more takeout than before. So they're, they're sales, the sales are probably down, but not down that much. If you've got a fine dining restaurant, like a Michelin star restaurant type thing, they don't obviously do takeout and they're in lockdown. So they can't be affected. They can't be open at all. So they, their revenues are literally zero now. Now, if you move forward to a world where things are starting to open again with social distancing and so on in place, the picture really changes because the in restaurant dining of the pizza restaurant will probably be quite affected because they can't have people so crowded together. They can't turn tables around so fast because they have to clean up and everything. Whereas the Michelin star restaurant probably already had a lot of space. They probably also didn't take bookings back to back to back. So they have more space for people to have a dining experience. And so they'll probably rebound harder than, than the other restaurants. So, so we, we look at a very granular uh, set of scenarios and we try to classify businesses in great detail to try and capture that um, that accurately.
0: Taking the restaurant example almost even further, it sounds like if you're thinking about a Michelin star restaurant, like even the time of year where the recovery is happening, right, if the recovery happens in January and you can't go dine inside, you have outdoor dining, it's a you know $500 dinner likelihood that you go do that in January is much lower than you've got in August or, you know, whatever, spring or something. Wow. That is a complex, complex moat that you're building there. But I would, that is the key word, I think also of just moat, right? Competitive over time is getting stronger and stronger.
1: Well, the good thing about hard, hard things is they're hard for everyone, Right. So, so yeah, but, but I mean, it's kind of one of the ways you cut the cut the Gordian knot on this is, is data. Right. So one of the things with restaurants, if you want to find your way through uh, like a complicated question, like how is a given lockdown affecting reservations or like revenues of restaurants? There is restaurant reservation data You can just get them. So you can actually see almost in, you know, in daily basis uh, for given cities and so on. Because you couldn't possibly, even in the U.S., you couldn't possibly keep, pace of all the different metro areas and what all their different restrictions are and so on, it's just too much. But these data sources will actually tell you on the ground what's really happening with reservations. Um, and in other sectors, you know, there are other examples which are similar. So there's a data sources which will tell you uh, the ground truth, so to speak, and you can kind of back into everything else from there.
0: That's really interesting. The amount of creativity that it sounds like your data team has to get into of just like, well, let's combine the other channel open API with the open table open API with this with that. I mean, it's a, I am an idiot when it comes to this stuff, but that sounds like a really fun problem to solve if you are the correct kind of human. I love it. Uh, uh, I know we're coming up on time here, so let's kind of hit the hit the housekeeping items. Um, anything that is worth kind of announcing I know you guys had another partnership you're moving very fast, so these partnerships seem to be popping up daily or weekly. but if you want to talk a little bit about that so folks can get their head wrapped around it and then uh, just anything else that you want to hit on for for Oak North towards the end here
1: yeah, sure thing so so the sort of the hot new news on top of the previous partnerships we announced with. PNC, SMBC, Customers Bank, and so on. Uh, We just recently, I think like earlier this week announced uh, Old National Bank, um, which we're very excited uh, to be able to say that they're using our credit intelligence suite. um, And um, they're using it for borrower level stress testing, risk management uh, across their CNI portfolio. So that's that's really cool. Um, And we're very excited to work with them. Obviously they're a great bank. They have an incredibly high reputation for ethical standards and so on. So they, they're a really fantastic reference customer to have. Um, but yeah, there's more and more customers coming along all the time. We're very excited to work with them.
0: So we do have a number of, you know, community bankers listening to the show. What size bank is ideal to reach out to Oak North? Who, you know, who do you want to get in touch with specifically in the U.S.? We have some listeners overseas, but mostly U.S. So who who should be reaching out to you and how do they reach out to you?
1: Yeah, good question. So, I mean, firstly, you can always just email me, Sean, which is S-E-A-N dot Hunter, Hunter, H-U-N-T-E-R at oakness.com. I'm more than happy to point you in the right direction uh, if you if I need to redirect your query. But um, yeah, we we work with all sizes of banks from some of the largest banks in the world. Obviously, SMBC is a, a trillion plus asset bank to, to pretty small uh, community banks and so on. So we're very happy to talk to any size of bank. I think the discriminating factor is if you really want to do uh, small business lending or mid-market lending, sort of in a more intelligent way. That's that's really the thing that that you know we want to work with banks on. Um, so we don't really do anything for retail specifically. Um, we're really focused on uh, CNI and and CRE lending um, in particular.
0: Awesome. Well, with the, the tranche of funding coming for small businesses uh, through PPP2, it sounds like a, maybe a timely opportunity to reach out. And also with that piece, it sounds like probably you all are hiring. Are there any places that people are looking if they're you know, wanting to get more involved with Oak North in an employment capacity kind of thing or any other pieces that folks should go look
1: at? Yeah, good question. If you go to oaknorth.com, uh, there's a careers section on our, on our website. And even if a specific role isn't on there, if you there, there's contact details, you can reach out there. But yeah, we are hiring, in particular in the U.S. because it's a huge growth market for us. And obviously, we you know U.S. has got thousands of banks, and we think there's a huge opportunity to to help revolutionize small and mid market lending in the U.S.
0: Well, I. Definitely agree. And I will put all of that in the show notes so people have an easy way to get to it. Sean, thank you, my friend. This has been really fun. I've learned a lot and uh really enjoy nerding out on this stuff with you.
1: Oh, it's been great talking to you, Zach. Thank you so much for having me on.
0: Absolutely. All right. I hope you enjoyed this episode of For FinTech's sake with Sean Hunter. If you want to learn more about Sean and Oak North, I put pertinent links and more information in the show notes. <laughs> don't forget to subscribe, rate, review, and all the other things I'm supposed to remind you to do as a responsible podcast host. You can do that in any of your favorite podcast apps, be it Apple, be it Spotify, be it something I've never heard of. And if you want our weekly emails, like I said before, go to forfintechsake.com and subscribe there. Until next time, stay healthy, keep your head high, and it's March, y'all. Let's get mad.